You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Today's episode is brought to you by our supporters on Patreon, including our Commodore class. That's Commodore's Obvious, Misfit, Sean, Lee, David, Torso and Pinches, Matt, Hangman Strain, Sir Rancid Cheese, Shelby, Andrew, Axios, Richard, Hartman, Skipper, The Sextant, Brian, Cap'n Crunch, Roger the Jolly, Vibran, Artemis Killmeister, Carcos, Rotary Coast, M.D., Lost Again, The Navigator, Vasios, Doc Lindsay, Pitlock, Ward, Workman, Chairboat, Gunsway Sally, Cannon Monkey, Rum Runner, Madame Anita Sparrow, Hefe, Bull, Vertigon, Rumgut, and Bootstraps Bailey. Hello. Welcome to the Pirate History Podcast. My name is Matt. Thank you for listening. William Dampier introduced dozens of words to the English language. My favorite, I think, well, one of my favorites anyway, it's a word that he didn't actually introduce into the language. He just introduced a new meaning for it. But if we give Shakespeare credit for that, why not Dampier too? The word is ramble, or rambling. Prior to Dampier's usage, it meant to talk, or think, or write in an unfocused manner, which is, of course, something I know nothing about. When Dampier used it, he was comparing a leisurely walk, while letting your mind wander, to writing in a rambling manner. Now, the similar connotation of having a wanderlust, a kind of a nomadic inclination, well, that wasn't going to come until later. When the Allman brothers talk about being a rambling man, they aren't talking about a stroll through the park, they're talking about a wide-ranging kind of exploratory life. Which, of course, is a description that could fit perfectly William Dampier. You know, he spent years of his life exploring the world. So it's a bit odd that he used the word rambling in reference to what was perhaps the most stationary period of his adult life. He was talking about how he spent so many of his days after he returned to London. He spent them rambling around the streets, looking for coffee houses and, more importantly, interesting conversation. 
This is episode 309, A Ramblin' Man. Before we get too dampier, though, I'd like to take a little bit of time to talk about his wife, Judith. See, I found this interesting tidbit about her that maybe kind of informs some of the things that her husband would go on to do. It was after Dampier's first voyage to Jamaica when he spent some time as a sugar plantation driver, a job that he hated, when he returned to England and married Judith. Then he immediately turned around and headed back to Jamaica. That was 1679. Now, most of my sources, those that talk about Judith at all, they mention her taking on employment as a maid, and most of the sources end there. In A Pirate of Exquisite Mind, Diana and Michael Preston suggest it was probably employment with a well-off middle-class family, which is a perfectly fair and reasonable assumption to make. The middle class was growing by leaps and bounds in London, and they all needed maids. However, I found a source that was more specific. The Museum of Western Australia records Judith as having worked for the Duchess of Grafton, the MWA is a fantastic research organization, kind of like an Australian Smithsonian. And, as we will see, Australia has a special relationship with William Dampier, so, unless I hear something to the contrary, I have no reason to doubt them on this. And if Judith did indeed work for the Duchess of Grafton, that's a big job. That's not some middle-class merchant. The Duke and Duchess of Grafton were at the absolute height of English society. The Duke of Grafton was Henry Fitzroy, an illegitimate son of King Charles II. And just because he was illegitimate, it's not like he was shunted off to the side. You know, he was raised in the royal household. I mean, they made him a duke. When Henry was nine years old, he was promised to marry Isabella Bennett who was only four years old at the time, and Isabella had her own impressive lineage. Her father was the Earl of Arlington, a royalist war hero from the Civil War. So you'd think that the son of the king and the daughter of a royalist war hero would grow up to be the most loyal supporters that those later Stuarts ever had. But it didn't exactly work out that way. See, Isabella's mother was Dutch. Her mother, Elizabeth, was the illegitimate daughter of the Prince of Orange, and through that line, Isabella Bennet was the great-granddaughter of William the Silent. That makes her the second cousin to the current stadholder of Holland and Zealand, William of Orange-Nassau. So there are some divided loyalties in their house. The two were married in 1679. Henry was 16 and Isabella was still only 10 years old, which, even for a noble marriage, is still pretty young. And to be clear, she wasn't going to be expected to consummate the marriage for a few years yet, but the Stuarts were trying very hard to build a strong series of alliances with the house of the Prince of Orange-Nassau. This wasn't long after James wed his daughter to William. They were building all these alliances kind of in a rush to combat what the French were up to at that point, but that's really neither here nor there for this story. It was here in 1679, though, that Judith was hired on as a maid in this new household. When a duke marries a duchess and move out to an estate somewhere, 
they'd need a bunch of maids to help run the place. But since Isabella was still far too young to actually run a household, the job of hiring staff members and managing the house would have fallen to Henry's mother, Barbara Villiers. And Barbara Villiers was quite the woman. She was not the most famous of King Charles II's mistresses. That would almost certainly fall to Nell Gwynne, the actress that many English people considered the real Queen of England. But Barbara Villiers may have been the most beautiful of his mistresses. Listen to how Antonia Fraser describes Barbara Villiers in her book on Charles II. She writes, quote, Tall, voluptuous, with masses of brunette hair, slanting, heavy-lidded violet eyes, alabaster skin, and a sensuous, sulky mouth. End quote. I mean, come on. The king gave her a son, Henry Fitzroy, and Henry did inherit some of his father's features. I mean, take a look at his portrait, and it just screams, I'm the son of Charles II. They look a lot alike. But Charles II was... Well, when they talk about his face, they usually use a word like bold. I'm just saying that if he wasn't the king, Charles Stuart would never have been able to get a woman like Barbara Villiers. There's a reason why J.M. Barrie chose King Charles II as his model for Captain Hook, the ugly old villain. But in Henry, all of those features were softened. The pronounced chin, the unfortunate nose. He's the kind of guy that when you call his features bold, it's not a euphemism for way too big. You mean it when you're talking about him. You know, Harrison Ford has bold features. And Henry Fitzroy was a very good-looking young man. During the wedding ceremony to Isabella, Henry was described by the diarist John Evelyn as, quote, exceedingly handsome, by far surpassing any of the king's other natural issue. End quote. So you've got this good-looking, rich 16-year-old who had just recently been raised to a dukedom, and his wife is ten. What is a young, good-looking, rich duke to do? Well, his mother hires this new maid, Judith probably about 20 or 21 years old at the time. And if Judith were, in fact, in the service of Isabella, Duchess of Grafton, who was 10 years old, Judith would probably have been, you know, the nanny. Now, I don't want to cast any aspersions on Judith Dampier, but, I mean, come on. You know, she marries William, but then he up and leaves for 12 years. It's a voyage that she doesn't know if he's ever going to return from, and let's face it, even when he was in England, he probably did not return her affections very strongly. But here, this good-looking young woman finds herself in the employ and in the household of the handsomest young noble in England. Barbara Villiers, who would have hired Judith, was a woman who knew well the desires of young royals, and it's likely that, when choosing women to look after her daughter-in-law, she also would have considered the maid's other qualifications. Which might seem a bit weird, hiring women 
that her son would find particularly appealing, but it's just what you do in her position. You hire a bunch of attractive young women and dress them up quite well and hope that one of them will keep your son distracted. I mean, it's a lot better than the alternatives. Your son could go chasing after some nobleman's daughter or some nobleman's wife, and that kind of thing can cause trouble down the road. Isabella, though, would grow into a beautiful young woman while Judith was still in service in their household. And that's not a courtesy to Isabella. You know, when you spend a good deal of time looking at portraits of rich English people, the good-looking ones tend to stand out, and Isabella was gorgeous. Once she'd grown up, I kind of doubt that any dalliance with the help was still on Henry Fitzroy's radar, nor would that kind of thing have been appreciated by his wife. But, you know, Judith stayed on for years, so any former relationship between she and Henry was probably just overlooked or, you know, well-hidden. Now, I should be clear, all of this is just speculation. We know very little about Judith. I'm just talking about things that could have happened. But this story does kind of, for me at least, help some things make sense. Whatever was or was not going on behind closed doors, though, Judith did appear to get on well with her employers. At least, it appears that she had some understanding of their business dealings. And I should mention here that Henry Fitzroy was the Vice Admiral of England. That's the second highest office in the Admiralty. His boss, the Lord High Admiral, was James Stewart. And while Henry was serving as the vice-admiral, he became king of England. So, again, his illegitimate status did not make him some kind of pariah. He was way up there at the very tippy-top. Now, the vice-admiralty was an administrative position. Henry didn't spend a lot of time on board ships while serving there, but he did actually do the job mostly coordinating and delegating work to all of the admirals under his command, which means he knew everyone. And he did serve in the military, just not the navy, which is kind of weird for an admiral, but when he saw combat, he did so as a commander of the grenadiers in the English army. Then in 1685, his father, King Charles II, died and this very nearly tore the family apart. James II was Catholic, and Henry's eldest brother, James Fitzroy, yet another illegitimate son of King Charles II, was the Duke of Monmouth, and the Duke of Monmouth had a problem with a Catholic king of England. So Monmouth went into open rebellion against James II, and Henry was put in a difficult position here. He had to make a choice to see support his older brother or his uncle. In the end, he chose to stay loyal to the king, and James ordered him to command the grenadiers and the army that was sent to crush the Duke of Monmouth. Now, that campaign was short and did not end well for Monmouth's forces, but during the campaign, Henry Fitzroy met a cavalry commander in the army named John Churchill. The two men became fast friends, which might inform the decision that Henry was going to make in 1688. 
when that large group of nobles wrote to William of Orange, inviting him to come claim the throne of England, Henry Fitzroy added his name to the letter. He'd made up his mind to go against King James. Now, his reason for doing so could be very simple. King James wasn't a very good king. But let's not forget that his wife Isabella was probably encouraging him to support her second cousin, which might come with some major social and political benefits for their family. Whatever the case, though, it proved to be the right decision, or at least the winning decision. William claimed the throne without a drop of blood being spilled. Once the revolution was done, however, Henry found himself free to make some business moves and chose to invest in a few of the joint stock companies popping up around London. His biggest investment, a not insubstantial part of his whole estate, was in a new, high-profile venture. They were planning a voyage to Spain, and then on to America, to sell wine. It was called Spanish Expedition Shipping. This is something of which I'm sure Judith took note. After investing a large chunk of his estate in Spanish Expedition Shipping, Henry Fitzroy was dispatched to fight in Ireland in the Williamite War. There, he would be killed in battle, and his house didn't exist anymore. He had no heir. So it must have been a scary, uncertain moment for Judith Dampier. It wasn't going to happen immediately, but very shortly, she was going to be out of a job that she'd held for the past 12 years. But then... William Dampier returned home. I'm Jane Perlez, longtime foreign correspondent and former Beijing bureau chief for the New York Times. I've been a foreign correspondent in lots of places Somalia, Indonesia, Pakistan, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I mean, China is not dropping anti-democratic paratroopers into Montana. But of course, we did see things like the weather balloon slash spy balloon riveting the whole country for a week. This is Face Off, an eight-part series in which we'll take you behind the scenes to key moments in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. We'll speak with a diplomat, a spy, a tech reporter, a U.S. admiral, even Yo-Yo Ma. Plus, my pal and noted China historian Rana Mitter joins the conversation. We'll look at what's driving the two nations apart and explore whether anything can help bring them back together. Face-Off launches April 9th. Everybody shush! William Shatner has something to say. Cat and Jethro, box of oddities. What do you do when the woman you love dies? Well, of course, you dig her up and you live with her. Aww. The show examines weird things. There are plenty of old photographs from this time period of children out in the streets playing in and among the dead horse carcasses. Oh, I miss those days. Things used to be so much simpler. Cat and Jethro. Then there's the urine wheel, which sounds like a really bad game show. They've done weird things. Cat and Jethro, box of oddities. That is really mysterious. Join Cat and Jethro Gilligan-Toth for the strange, the bizarre, the unexpected as they lift the lid and cautiously peer inside 
The Box of Oddities. The Webby Award-winning Box of Oddities podcast from Airwave Media. I imagine Dampier's return was a bit of a relief for Judith. I also imagine it frustrated her. Just, you know, just picture it. You marry this guy. He leaves on a voyage to earn his fortune, and then he doesn't come home for 12 years. And when he does finally return, it's all, Hey, honey, I didn't bring back any money, but I do have this nubile young slave boy. All Dampier had in his possession were a sea chest full of his papers and Jolie, a young man who had been enslaved on Mindanao. Now, it appears that Dampier didn't actually purchase him. He received him as kind of a gift later on when he was in India, when he ran into some of the former crew of the Signet who had stayed on Mindanao when Dampier left. His plan appears to have been to present Jolie as sort of an attraction. And, you know, people would have gone to see it. He was an oddity in England. He was exotic and covered head to toe in tattoos. And tattoos at that point were virtually unheard of in England. In fact, the word did not yet exist until Dampier introduced it. And if you hear somebody suggest that it was actually Captain Cook that introduced the word tattoo, well, I don't want to encourage violence, but do what you gotta do. Dampier, though, as it turned out, didn't know anything about show business, and what he needed right now was money. Not to mention, I'm sure his wife had a thing or two to say about the handsome young man that Dampier brought back with him. You know, at least try to keep up appearances, man. So Dampier sold Jolie to a local theater owner for a handsome sum. It was enough that Dampier could secure lodgings for he and his wife, as well as a few sets of decent clothes to begin making the rounds in London. It's here that Dampier began his rambling life, strolling from coffee house to coffee house with a satchel full of papers under his arm. And keep in mind that coffee houses were still a pretty high-class affair at the time. Coffee was expensive and exotic, and coffee houses also served all kinds of other exotic foods from around the world. They virtually all sold chocolate, for example. They offered tobacco, and some of them even baked pastries sweetened with sugar. Dampier met all kinds of impressive men at these coffee houses. He met nobles and scholars and very rich merchants. He wouldn't meet any women, of course. They weren't allowed in the coffee houses. But he met one nobleman who would go on to invest a great deal in his book that was just in love with chocolate. His favorite way to consume it was to drink it. Now, I can't give Dampier credit for introducing hot chocolate to Europe. That distinction goes to one of his peers another English naturalist named Hans Sloan. A few years earlier, Sloan had visited Jamaica and then traveled around the West Indies. While he was there, he tried the traditional Indian chocolate drink, but he found it upset his stomach. He didn't care for it. So he sweetened it with sugar, added a little bit of cinnamon, and then tossed in a dash of milk. When he brought that recipe back with him, it was an instant smash hit around England and then it spread all around Europe. Every coffee house in Europe served the drink, but Dampier suggested another recipe, a similar recipe, but something he had seen natives drinking in the New World. They would blend milk and sugar 
warm it up, and then stir it so quickly that it became kind of frothy, and then they would pour that into their coffee. Thus, Dampier introduced the cappuccino to England. So Dampier was getting his name out there, and his manuscript was making the rounds with men in places like the Royal Society, but he still wasn't making any money. So he signed up for the Spanish Expedition. Now, this might seem a bit odd. He'd only been home a few months, and already he was going to depart on another voyage across the sea. It might seem like he was running away from his wife, and since, as I believed, Ampier was probably gay, we might assume that he was uncomfortable in married life, but that doesn't seem to be the case. William Dampier and Judith worked very closely together, as we'll soon see. I think it's more likely that Judith actually encouraged her husband to sign on the voyage. She probably had some inside information that it was going to be a very lucrative venture, but even if she didn't have information from her former employer, it's not like this was some kind of secret everybody knew about the Spanish expedition. And for Judith in particular, it would have been good news to hear that they had promised to pay sailors' wives half the wage of their husbands every month. That was a big selling point for a lot of sailors and their wives. So Dampier signed up and joined the voyage. They sailed over to Spain, where they docked in La Coruña, and then just sort of sat there. And of course, the sailors weren't getting paid, their wives weren't getting paid, Instead, the sailors were being beaten, fed horrible food, and even believed that they were going to be sold to the king of Spain. Henry Every led his mutiny. William Dampier decided not to join up with the mutiny. You know, he was building a life for himself back in England. It would be foolish to do. But after he returned home, he was called in to testify before a court and a committee of the parliament about exactly what conditions had been like on board the Charles II prior to the mutiny. Now, these hearings were initially held because all of those sailors' wives had protested the lack of pay so loudly. You know, it was an inquest into whether or not there had been malfeasance on the part of the owners. As Dampier was one of those sailors who had not been paid, he was certainly going to testify. But then... Henry Every captured the gunsway. The whole tenor of the hearings changed, and instead of an inquest into the malfeasance of the owners, it gets turned into an inquisition against the pirates. You know, the Parliament didn't call him in because some housewives hadn't gotten paid. They called him in because he may have something to add about the most notorious man in the world. And I bet this put Dampier in a bit of an uncomfortable situation. You know, all of a sudden, he's got to go before a subcommittee of the parliament and argue that, yeah, Henry Every's a bad dude and piracy isn't good, but, you know, he kind of had a point. It was terrible. But he made those arguments. He was honest about how terrible things were on the Spanish expedition. And his reputation was good enough that he could survive doing something like that, socially and politically. He knew some of the men to whom he was testifying, and they were able to ensure to their peers that Dampier was to be trusted. Some of these men, including that chocolate lover we mentioned earlier, well, they had a significant financial interest in ensuring that people believed Dampier was to be trusted. 
they'd invested in his manuscript, and it was to receive a full publication to the public. A new voyage around the world became a smash hit almost overnight. The thing is, though, being a literary celebrity in England circa 1700 was a little like being a young black musician who signed up with Motown in about 1960. If you are too young to get that joke, Motown was a record production and distribution label based out of Detroit in the mid-20th century. Early on in Motown's life, they weren't always the best about paying their artists fair royalties. And it wasn't, you know, nightmarish exploitation or anything. It's not like some guy back in the 40s that found some young talent on the street and said, Hey, kid, I'll pay you 20 bucks to sing into the can. And Motown did get a lot better about paying their artists fair royalties later on. But in those early days, some artists were actually just paid a flat fee to record an album. William Dampier's situation was a little bit like that. He was paid a flat fee for the rights to publish his book. It was fairly substantial. It was enough for him to afford a house and really build a home for he and his wife, but it was nothing compared to what he would have owned had he been paid a cut of the sales. It was around this time that Dampier signed over power of attorney over his estate to his wife. Now that he had a bestseller under his belt and a home to manage, it was time to make sure that she was taken care of. And to be fair, she'd earned it. There's a fair bit of evidence that Judith helped him edit the manuscript. Now, initially, I'd assumed that Judith was not able to read. For a woman of common birth in London in 1700, it would have been unusual for her to know how to read. But, given the new information we discussed earlier, if she did indeed work for the Duchess Grafton, well, the Duchess would have been taught to read as a girl. She would have been expected to know how to discourse on literature. And Judith, if we assume she was indeed, you know, the nanny looking after her charge, she would have been there sitting in on those lessons. It's not uncommon for maids in noble households to know how to read. It would have made them, at least, much more enjoyable company for the women of the house. So Judith may have actually, you know, edited A New Voyage Around the World, but whether or not she could read, she certainly gave him some advice. See, we still have a few incomplete scraps of Dampier's original journals, and when we compare the unfiltered pages to the published work, you spot some pretty big discrepancies. There are these moments, especially in the first half of the book, where Dampier's, you know, sailing with a crew of buccaneers. They're the most dastardly pirates known to man, but Dampier's portrayed as just kind of an out-of-sorts English gentleman. And I can't help but picture him in those... And I can't help but picture him in a pair of those, you know, those goofy shorts that men wore at the time with silk stockings and buckled shoes. He's balancing his notebook and his little inkwell to jot down notes, and then, ooh, look at that, he spots a parrot or something and scampers over there to get a quick sketch and jot down some notes. Meanwhile, in the background, the village is in flames. 
His shipmates are busy carrying off chests of plunder. Others are dragging women to some nearby haystack. Men are being flayed alive on the rack to give up the location of their buried treasure, and the streets are running red with blood. But what's this? Dampier spots a crocodile, and what a funny nose it's got. Better get that down. He's kind of this guileless Charlie Chaplin character. I think about that scene in modern times when Chaplin kind of accidentally winds up with a red flag of socialism leading a protest march. So Dampier, in his published work, was careful to make sure that he was never too closely associated with the piracy. But now that Dampier's book was in full circulation, he had some real clout. He got his portrait painted at this point in his life. It's the one that you've seen if you've seen a picture of William Dampier. He was actually introduced to the portrait painter by Hans Sloane, the hot chocolate guy. Dampier managed to translate some of that clout into getting his old friend Lionel Wafer released from that Virginia jail. Edward Davis was also released, but while Wafer returned to London, Davis probably sailed on to the fabled pirate paradise Libertalia, where, eventually, he would meet Captain Kidd. Almost as soon as Lionel Wafer arrived in London, though, he and William Dampier were both called to testify before another subcommittee of the Parliament. The Parliament was very concerned about reports they had that the Scottish were preparing to establish a colony called New Caledonia in the region known as Darien. William Dampier and Lionel Wafer were the two men in the whole of the English Empire that knew the most about the Guna people of Darien. So they were called in to give their opinion on the matter. But they weren't alone. The Parliament also called in John Locke, the philosopher. Apparently, Dampier and Locke hit it off quite a bit. They were known to retire to those coffee houses to discuss all manner of things. Now, I had an entire episode written and recorded this week, but I decided not to release it. That's why today's episode is late. It's here, though, that that episode went entirely off the rails as soon as I introduced John Locke. It devolved into a very long rant about his philosophy. I waxed on about the concept of natural rights about the social contract, the duty to revolt against tyranny, and about the concept of the noble savage. Now, the problem here is that I am not what you would consider a scholar of Lockean philosophy. I've never even read any Locke, not really. I've read some books about the Enlightenment that talked about John Locke, but never, you know, really delved into it myself. So that episode was... It was a mess. It really was. I had this whole thing about Charlie Chaplin in there that I really wanted to make make sense, but it never did. I even got into, I'll just say it, I started talking about UFOs. You know, Have you guys heard about this? And I tried to tie it back to John Locke, but it didn't work. It got pretty weird. You know, I've been fighting some demons this week, and... You know, I'd like to actually thank everyone who has been kind enough to send me some encouragement in my battle to quit smoking. Here's my PSA to everyone out there. 
you shouldn't smoke. If you do, you'll wind up trying to compare Charlie Chaplin to John Locke and do it with a straight face. The thing is, though, despite my limitations in being able to comprehend or explain this stuff, the natural rights of man, the concept of the noble savage, these were central to the debates about Darien. Now, if you really want to understand these concepts, you know, in depth, really get to the meat of the thing, what you've got to do is go watch City Lights. <laughs> but in lieu of that, I'm going to try to describe why they were important, but I'll make it quick. <laughs> in 1650, Thomas Hobbes argued that man absent the constraints of society and a strong government, was an ignoble animal. Hobbes' shorthand for society and government was Leviathan. Absent Leviathan, life was nasty, brutish, and short. About fifty years later, John Locke would contend this position. He proposed that man, in his natural state, was noble. Absent Leviathan, you know, society, government, man was a noble savage. Now, John Locke wasn't, you know, some kind of anarchist. He believed in society and government, but he wanted to make it all better. Locke believed that those who lived outside the grasp of Leviathan were still good, humane people. To really boil it down, the argument that he made before the Parliament was just because they don't have kings and banks and churches... Well, that doesn't mean that they're evil, so we shouldn't, you know, brutalize them, enslave them, and kill them. Now, these were arguments made in the abstract, because John Locke didn't know anything about the Guna people, aside from what he had learned from Lionel Wafer and William Dampier. But Dampier and Wafer both argued essentially the same point. They're good people, not to mention they're, you know, allied to the English. They helped us against the Spanish, so... Maybe we shouldn't do anything terrible to them. And maybe, just maybe, it would be a really bad idea for the Scottish to establish a colony there. So the men in their wigs got the answer they wanted. They banged their gavels and said, you know, very good job, gentlemen. What's interesting, though, is that Dampier really seems to have taken to John Locke's philosophy. They talked about the natural rights of man, you know, the inalienable rights that Thomas Jefferson talked about. Life, liberty, and, in John Locke's version, estate or property. He believed that all men, even noble savages, possessed such rights. And that's interesting for William Dampier to be having these high-minded discussions, especially considering what's coming. So Dampier had a home, and a manuscript that was selling well, he still didn't have a regular source of income. He needed to find some work. So he talked to some of those fancy men he met in the coffee houses. Maybe his wife, from her time serving the Vice Admiral of England, knew some naval men that he could speak to. William Dampier managed to finagle himself the rank of captain in His Majesty's Royal Navy. That was a job that even when he wasn't actively in service, came with a pretty decent paycheck. The year was 1699. War with France was looming on the horizon, but Dampier was never going to have to worry about joining the line of battle and leading a ship in wartime. 
That wasn't what he was hired to do. He'd been commissioned as a Royal Navy captain to do what he did best. He was going to sail out to uncharted waters and document his findings. He was going to explore. After all, he'd already proven that he could discover a wealth of amazing new scientific data while he was burdened with a crew of villainous, barbarous pirates. Imagine what a man like him could do. Imagine what he might find, what he might discover, if he was supported not by pirates, but by the stalwart stand-up crew of HMS Roebuck. I'd like to thank everybody for listening. I'd like to thank everybody who has helped to support the show, all of our patrons on Patreon, everybody who has left us ratings or reviews, and everybody who has recommended this show to your friends or family. Without all of you, I couldn't do this. Thank you. The Pirate History Podcast is a member of the Airwave Media Podcast Network. If you'd like to check out some of their other fine shows, like The Age of Napoleon, you can do so at airwavemedia.com. Our theme music was, as always, The Old Captain by the fantastic band Brillig. You can always check them out at brillig.com.au. After you're done over there, why not check out our website at piratehistorypodcast.com. As always, most importantly, thank you for listening. Tonight